0: Section four of Hans Christian Andersen Fairy Tales and Short Stories, Volume Five, eighteen sixty 1860 to eighteen sixty-five. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Putzig, Boston. Hans Christian Andersen Fairy Tales and Short Stories, Volume Five, eighteen sixty 1860 to eighteen sixty-five, by Hans Christian Andersen, translated by H. P. Paul a story from the sand-hills this journey in thought then to sunny spain it is warm and beautiful there the fiery pomegranate flowers peep from among dark laurels a cool refreshing breeze from the mountains blows over the orange gardens over the moorish halls with their golden cupolas and coloured walls children go through the streets in procession with candles and waving banners and the sky lofty and clear with its glittering stars rises above them. Sound of singing and castanets can be heard, and youths and maidens dance upon a flowering acacia trees, while even the beggar sits upon a block of marble, refreshing himself with a juicy melon, and dreamily enjoying life. It all seems like a beautiful dream. Here dwelt a newly married couple who completely gave themselves up to the charm of life. Indeed they possessed every good thing they could desire, health and happiness, riches and honor. "'We are as happy as human beings can be,' said the young couple from the depths of their hearts. They had, indeed, only one step higher to mount on the ladder of happiness. They hoped that God would give them a child, a son, like them in form and spirit. The happy little one was to be welcomed with rejoicing, to be cared for with love and tenderness, and enjoy every advantage of wealth and luxury that a rich and influential family can give. So the days went by like a joyous festival.' life is a gracious gift from god almost too great a gift for us to appreciate said the young wife yet they say that the fullness of joy forever and ever can only be found in the future life i cannot realize it the thought arises perhaps from the arrogance of men said the husband it seems a great pride to believe that we shall live forever that we shall be as gods were not these the words of the serpent the father of lies Surely you do not doubt the existence of a future life, exclaimed the young wife. It seemed as if one of the first shadows passed over her sunny thoughts. Faith realizes it, and the priests tell us so, replied her husband, but amid all my happiness I feel that it is arrogant to demand a continuation of it, another life after this. Has not so much been given to us in this world that we ought to be, we must be, contented with it? "'Yes, it has been given to us,' said the young wife, "'but this life is nothing more than one long scene of trial and hardship for many thousands. "'How many have been cast into this world only to endure poverty, shame, illness, and misfortune? "'If there were no future life, everything here would be too unequally divided, "'and God would not be the personification of justice.' "'The beggar there,' said the husband, "'has joys of his own which seem to him great.' "'and cause him as much pleasure as a king would find "'in the magnificence of his palace. "'And then do you not think that the beast of burden "'which suffers blows and hunger and works itself to death "'suffers just as much from its miserable fate? "'The dumb creature might demand a future life also "'and declare the law unjust that excludes it "'from the advantages of the higher creation.' "'Christ said, "'In my Father's house are many mansions,' she answered heaven is as boundless as the love of our creator the dumb animal is also his creature and i firmly believe that no life will be lost but each will receive as much happiness as he can enjoy which will be sufficient for him this world is sufficient for me said the husband throwing his arm around his beautiful sweet tempered wife he sat by her side on the open balcony, smoking a cigarette in the cool air, which was loaded with the sweet scent of carnations and orange blossoms. Sounds of music and the clatter of castanets came from the road beneath. The stars shone above them and two eyes full of affection. Those of his wife looked upon him with the expression of undying love. Such a moment, he said, makes it worth while to be born, to die, and to be annihilated. He smiled. The young wife raised her hand in gentle reproof, and the shadow passed away from her mind, and they were happy, quite happy. Everything seemed to work together for their good. They advanced in honor, in prosperity, and in happiness. A change came, certainly, but it was only a change of place and not of circumstances. The young man was sent by his sovereign as an ambassador to the Russian court, this was an office of high dignity, but his birth and his acquirements entitled him to the honor. He possessed a large fortune, and his wife had brought him wealth equal to his own, for she was the daughter of a rich and respected merchant. One of the merchant's largest and finest ships was to be sent that year to Stockholm, and it was arranged that the dear young couple, the daughter and the son-in-law, should travel in it to St. Petersburg all the arrangements on board were princely and silk and luxury on every side in an old war song called the king of england's son it says farewell he said and sailed away and many recollect that day the ropes were of silk the anchor of gold and everywhere riches and wealth untold these words would aptly describe the vessel from spain for here was the same luxury and the same parting thought naturally arose. God grant that we once more may meet in sweet unclouded peace and joy. There was a favorable wind blowing as they left the Spanish coast, and it would be but a short journey, for they hoped to reach their destination in a few weeks. But when they came out upon the wide ocean, the wind dropped, the sea became smooth and shining, and the stars shone brightly. Many festive evenings were spent on board. At last the travellers began to wish for wind, for a favourable breeze, but their wish was useless, not a breath of air stirred, or, if it did arise, it was contrary. Weeks passed by in this way, two whole months, and then at length a fair wind blew from the southwest. The ship sailed on the high seas between Scotland and Jutland, then the wind increased, just as it did in the old song of the King of England's Son. Mid storm and wind and pelting hail, their efforts were of no avail, the golden anchor forth they threw towards Denmark, the west wind blew. This all happened a long time ago. King Christian the Seventh, who sat on the Danish throne, was still a young man. Much has happened since then, much has been altered or changed. Sea and moorland have been turned into green meadows, stretches of heather have become arable land, and... In the shelter of the peasants' cottages, apple trees and rose bushes grow, though they certainly require much care, as the sharp west wind blows upon them. In West Jutland one may go back in thought to the old times farther back than the days when Christian Seventh ruled. The purple heather still extends for miles, with its barrows and aerial spectacles intersected with sandy, uneven roads, just as it did then towards the west. Where broad streams run into the bays are marshes and meadows encircled by lofty sandy hills, which, like a chain of Alps, raise their pointed summits near the sea. They are only broken by high ridges of clay, from which the sea, year by year, bites out great mouthfuls, so that the overhanging banks fall down as if by the shock of an earthquake. Thus it is there today, and thus it was long ago, when the happy pair were sailing in the beautiful ship. It was a sunday towards the end of september the sun was shining and the chiming of the church bells in the bay of neesom was carried along by the breeze like a chain of sounds the churches there are almost entirely built of hewn blocks of stone each like a piece of rock the north sea might foam over them and they would not be disturbed nearly all of them are without steeples and the bells are hung outside between two beams the service was over, and the congregation passed out into the churchyard, where not a tree or bush was to be seen, no flowers were planted there, and they had not placed a single wreath upon any of the graves. It is just the same now. Rough mounds show where the dead have been buried, and rank grass tossed by the wind grows thickly over the whole churchyard. Here and there a grave has a sort of monument, a block of half-decayed wood, rudely cut in the shape of a coffin. The blocks are brought from the forest of West Jutland, but the forest is the sea itself, and the inhabitants find beams and planks and fragments which the waves have cast upon the beach. One of these blocks has been placed by loving hands on a child's grave, and one of the women who has come out of the church walked up to it. She stood there, her eyes resting on the weather-beaten memorial, and a few minutes afterward her husband joined her. They were both silent, but he took her hand, and they walked together across the purple heath, over moor and meadow towards the sand hills. For a long time they went on without speaking. It was a good sermon today, the man said. If we had not God to trust in, we should have nothing. Yes, replied the woman. He sends joy and sorrow, and he has a right to send them. Tomorrow our little son would have been five years old if we had been permitted to keep him it's no use fretting wife said the man the boy is well provided for he is where we hope and pray to go to they say nothing more but walk out towards their houses among the sand hills all at once in front of one of the houses where the sea grass did not keep the sand down with its twining roots what seemed to be a column of smoke rose up a gust of wind rushed between the hills hurling the particles of sand high into the air Another gust and the strings of fish hung up to dry flapped and beat violently against the walls of the cottage. Then everything was quiet once more, and the sun shone with renewed heat. The man and his wife went into the cottage. They had soon taken off their Sunday clothes and come out again, hurrying over the sand dunes, which stood there like great waves of sand, suddenly arrested in their course, while the sand weeds and dune grass, with its bluish stalks, spread a changing color over them. A few neighbors came out and helped each other draw the boats higher up on the beach. The wind now blew more keenly. It was chilly and cold, and when they went back over the sand hills, sand and little sharp stones blew into their faces. The waves rose high, crested with the white foam, and the wind cut off their crests, scattering the foam far and wide. Evening came. There was a swelling roar in the air a wailing or moaning like the voices of despairing spirits, that sounded above the thunder of the waves. The fisherman's little cottage was on the very margin, and the sand rattled against the window panes, every now and then a violent gust of wind shook the house to its foundation. It was dark, but about midnight the moon would rise. Later on the air became clearer, but the storm swept over the perturbed sea with undiminished fury. The fisherfolk had long since gone to bed but in such weather there was no chance of closing an eye. Presently, there was a tapping at the window. The door was opened, and a voice said, "'There's a large ship stranded on the farthest reef.' In a moment, the fisher-people sprung from their beds and hastily dressed themselves. The moon had risen, and it was light enough to make the surrounding objects visible to those who could open their eyes in the blinding clouds of sand. The violence of the wind was terrible." and it was only possible to pass among the sandhills if one crept forward between the gusts. The salt spray flew up from the sea like down, and the ocean foamed like a roaring cataract towards the beach. Only a practiced eye could discern the vessel out in the offing. She was a fine brig, and the waves now lifted her over the reef. Three or four cables length out of the usual channel. She drove towards the shore, struck on the second reef, and remained fixed. It was impossible to render assistance. The sea rushed in on the vessel, making a clean breach over her. Those on shore thought they heard cries for help from those on board, and could plainly distinguish the busy but useless efforts made by the stranded sailors. Now a wave came rolling onward. It fell with enormous force on the bowsprit, tearing it from the vessel, and the stern was lifted high above the water. Two people were seen to embrace and plunged together into the sea, and the next moment one of the largest waves that rolled towards the sand hills threw a body on the beach. It was a woman. The sailors said that she was quite dead, but the women thought they saw signs of life in her, so the stranger was carried across the sand hills to the fisherman's cottage. How beautiful and fair she was. She must be a great lady, they said. They laid her upon the humble bed. There was not a yard of linen on it, only a woollen coverlet to keep the occupant warm. Life returned to her, but she was delirious, and knew nothing of what had happened or where she was, and it was better so, for everything she loved and valued lay buried in the sea. The same thing happened to her ship as to the one spoken of in the song about the King of England's Son. Alas, how terrible to see the gallant bark sink rapidly! Fragments of the wreck and pieces of wood were washed ashore. They were all that remained of the vessel. The wind still blew violently on the coast. For a few moments the strange lady seemed to rest, but she awoke in pain and uttered cries of anguish and fear. She opened her wonderfully beautiful eyes and spoke a few words, but nobody understood her. And lo, as a reward for the sorrow and suffering she had undergone, she held in her arms a newborn babe. The child was to have rested upon a magnificent couch, draped with silken curtains in a luxurious home it was to have been welcomed with joy to a life rich in all the good things of this world and now heaven had ordained that it should be born in this humble retreat that it should not even receive a kiss from its mother for when the fisherman's wife laid the child upon the mother's bosom it rested upon a heart that beat no more she was dead the child that was to have been reared amid wealth and luxury was cast into the world, washed by the sea among the sand-hills to share the fate and hardships of the poor. Here we are reminded again of the song about the King of England's son, for in it mention is made of the custom prevalent at the time when knights and squires plundered those who had been saved from shipwreck. The ship had been stranded some distance south of Nisom Bay, and the cruel inhuman days when, as we have just said, the inhabitants of Jutland treated the shipwrecked people so crudely, were passed long ago. Affectionate sympathy and self-sacrifice for the unfortunate existed then, just as it does in our own time in many a bright example. The dying mother and the unfortunate child would have found kindness and help wherever they had been cast by the winds but nowhere would it have been more sincere than in the cottage of the poor fisherman's wife, who had stood only the day before beside her child's grave, who would have been five years old that day if God had spared it to her. No one knew who the dead stranger was. They could not even form a conjecture. The fragments of records gave no clue to the matter. No tidings reached Spain of the fate of the daughter and son-in-law, they did not arrive at their destination, and violent storms had raged during the past weeks. At last, the verdict was given: foundered at sea, all lost. But in the fisherman's cottage among the sand hills near Husby, there lived a little scion of the rich Spanish family. Where heaven sends food for two, a third can manage to find a meal, and in the depths of the sea, there is many a dish of fish for the hungry they called the boy jorgen it certainly must be a jewish child its skin so dark the people said it might be an italian or a spaniard remarked the clergyman but to the fisherman's wife those nations seemed all the same and she consoled herself with the thought that the boy was baptized as a christian the boy throve the noble blood in his veins was warm and he became strong on his homely fare he grew apace in the humble cottage, and the Danish dialect spoken by the West Utes became his language. The pomegranate seed from Spain became a hardy plant on the coast of West Utland. Thus many circumstances alter the course of a man's life. To this home he clung with deep-rooted affection. He was to experience cold and hunger and the misfortunes and hardships that surround the poor, but he also tasted of their joys. Childhood has bright days for everyone, and the memory of them shines through the whole afterlife. The boy had many sources of pleasure and enjoyment. The coast for miles and miles was full of playthings, for it was a mosaic of pebbles, some red as coral or yellow as amber, and others again white and rounded like birds' eggs, and smoothed and prepared by the sea. Even the bleached fishes and skeletons the water plants dried by the wind, and seaweed white and shining, long linen-like bands waving between the stones, all these seemed made to give pleasure and occupation to the boy's thoughts, and he had an intelligent mind. Many great talents lay dormant in him. How readily he remembered stories and songs that he heard, and how dexterous he was with his fingers." With stones and mussel shells he could put together pictures and ships with which one could decorate the room. And he could make wonderful things from a stick, his foster mother said, although he was still so young and little. He had a sweet voice, and every melody seemed to flow naturally from his lips. And in his heart were hidden chords, which might have sounded far out into the world if he had been placed anywhere else than in the fisherman's hut by the North Sea. One day another ship was wrecked on the coast, and among other things a chest filled with valuable flower bulbs was washed ashore. Some were put into saucepans and cooked, for they were thought to be fit to eat, and others lay shriveled in the sand. They did not accomplish their purpose or unfold their magnificent colors. Would Jorgen fail better? The flower bulbs had soon played their part, but he had years and years of apprenticeship before him. Neither he nor his friends noticed in what a monotonous uniform way one day followed another, for there was always plenty to do and see. The ocean itself was a great lesson book, and it unfolded a new leaf each day of calm or storm, the crested wave or the smoothed surface. The visits to the church were festive occasions, but among the fishermen's house one was especially looked forward to this was in fact the visit of the brother of jorgen's foster mother the eel breeder from fjaltring near bovberg he came twice a year in a cart painted red with blue and white tulips upon it and full of eels it was covered and locked like a box two dun oxen drew it and jorgen was allowed to guide them the eel breeder was a witty fellow a merry guest, and brought a measure of brandy with him. They all received a small glassful or a cupful if there were not enough glasses. Even Jorgen had about a thimbleful, that he might digest the fat eel. As the eel breeder said, he always told one story over and over again, and if his hearers laughed, he would immediately repeat it to them. Jorgen, while still a boy, and also when he was older, used phrases from the eel breeder's story on various occasions, so it will be as well for us to listen to it. It runs thus. The eels went into the bay, and the young ones begged leave to go a little farther out. Don't go too far, said their mother. The ugly eel spearer might come and snap you all up. But they went too far, and of eight daughters only three came back to the mother, and these wept and said, we only went a little way out, and the ugly eel-spear came immediately and stabbed five of our sisters to death. "'They'll come back again,' said the mother eel. "'Oh, no!' exclaimed the daughters, for he skinned them, cut them in two, and fried them. "'Oh, they'll come back again,' the mother eel persisted. "'No,' replied the daughters, for he ate them up. "'They'll come back again,' repeated the mother eel. "'But he drank brandy after them,' said the daughters.' "'Ah, uh, then they'll never come back,' said the mother, and she burst out crying. "'It's the brandy that buries the eels.' "'And therefore,' said the eel-breeder in conclusion, "'it is always the proper thing to drink brandy after eating eels.' This story was the tinsel thread, the most humorous recollection of Jorgen's life. He also wanted to go a little further out and up the bay, that is to say, out into the world in a ship.' BUT HIS MOTHER SAID, LIKE THE EEL BREEDER, THERE ARE SO MANY BAD PEOPLE, EEL SPEARERS. HE WISHED TO GO A LITTLE WAY PAST THE sand hills, OUT INTO THE DUNES, AND AT LAST HE DID. FOUR HAPPY DAYS, THE BRIGHTEST OF ALL HIS CHILDHOOD, FELL INTO HIS LOT, AND THE WHOLE BEAUTY AND SPLENDOR OF JUTLAND. ALL THE HAPPINESS AND SUNSHINE OF HIS HOME WERE CONCENTRATED IN THESE. HE WENT TO A FESTIVAL, BUT IT WAS A BURIAL FEAST. A rich relation of the fisherman's family had died. The farm was situated far eastward in the country and a little towards the north. Jorgen's foster parents were there, and he also went with them from the dunes over heath and moor, where the Skemura takes its course through the green meadows and contains many eels. The mother eels live there with their daughters, who are caught up and eaten by wicked people. But do not men sometimes act quite cruelly towards their own fellow men? Was not the knight Sir Bugue murdered by wicked people? And though he was well spoken of, did he not also wish to kill the architect who built the castle for him with its thick walls and tower at the point where the scaimura falls into the bay? Jorgen and his parents now stood there. The wall and ramparts still remained, and red crumbling fragments lay scattered around. Here it was that Sir Bugue, after the architect had left him, said to one of his men... Go after him and say, Master, the tower shakes. If he turns round, kill him and take away the money I paid him. But if he does not turn round, let him go in peace. The man did as he was told. The architect did not turn round, but called back, The tower does not shake in the least, but one day a man will come from the west in a blue cloak, and he will cause it to shake. And so indeed it happened a hundred years later. For the North Sea broke in and cast down the tower, but Predbjorn Glidensjern, the man who possessed the castle, built a new castle higher up at the end of the meadow, and that one is standing to this day and is called Norvosburg. Jorgen and his foster parents went past this castle; they had told him its story during the long winter evenings and now he sat in the stately edifice with its double moat and trees and bushes the wall covered with ferns rose within the moat but the lofty lime trees were the most beautiful of all they grew to the highest windows and the air was full of their sweet fragrance in the northwest corner of the garden stood a great bush full of blossom like winter snow amid the summer's green it was a juniper bush the first that Jorgen had ever seen in bloom. He never forgot it, nor the lime-trees. The child's soul treasured up these memories of beauty and fragrance to gladden the old man. From norr where the juniper blossomed, the journey became more pleasant, for they met some other people who were also going to the funeral and were riding in wagons. Our travelers had to sit all together on a little box at the back of the wagon. Even this, they thought, was better than walking, so they continued their journey across the rugged heath. The oxen which drew the wagon stopped every now and then, where a patch of fresh grass appeared amid the heather. The sun shone with considerable heat, and it was wonderful to behold how, in the far distance, something like smoke seemed to be rising. Yet this smoke was clearer than the air. It was transparent, and looked like rays of light rolling and dancing afar over the heath that is lokoman driving his sheep said someone and this was enough to excite jorgen's imagination he felt as if they were now about to enter fairyland though everything was still real how quiet it was the heath stretched far and wide about them like a beautiful carpet the heather was in blossom and the juniper bushes and fresh oak saplings rose like bouquets from the earth an inviting place for a frolic if it had not been for the number of poisonous adders of which the travellers spoke they also mentioned the place had formerly been infested with wolves and that the district was still called wolfsborg for that reason the old man who was driving the oxen told them that in the lifetime of his father the horses had many a hard battle with the wild beasts that were now exterminated one morning when he himself had gone out to bring in the horses, he'd found one of them standing with its forefeet on a wolf it had killed, but the savage animal had torn and lacerated the brave horse's legs. The journey over the heath and deep sand was only too quickly at an end. They stopped before the house of mourning, where they found plenty of guests within and without. Wagon after wagon stood side by side, while the horses and oxen had been turned out to graze on the scanty pasture." Great sand hills, like those at home by the North Sea, rose behind the house and extended far and wide. How had they come here, so many miles inland? They were as large and high as those on the coast, and the wind had carried them there. There was also a legend attached to them. Psalms were sung, and a few of the old people shed tears. With this exception, the guests were cheerful enough. It seemed to Jorgen that there was plenty to eat and drink. There were eels of the fattest, requiring brandy to bury them, as the eel breeder said, and certainly they did not forget to carry out his maxim here. Jorgen went in and out the house, and on the third day he felt as much at home as he did in the fisherman's cottage among the sand hills, where he had passed his early days. Here on the heath were riches unknown to him until now, for flowers, blackberries, and bilberries were to be found in profusion so large and sweet that when they were crushed beneath the tread of passers-by, the heather was stained with their red juice. Here was a barrow, and yonder another. Then columns of smoke rose into the still air. It was a heath-fire, they told him, how brightly it blazed in the dark evening. The fourth day came, and the funeral festivities were at an end. They were to go back from the land dunes to the sand dunes. Ours are better, said the old fisherman jorgen's foster father these have no strength and they spoke of the way in which the sand dunes had come inland and it seemed very easy to understand this is how they explained it a dead body had been found on the coast and the peasants buried it in the churchyard from that time the sand began to fly about and the sea broke in with violence a wise man in the district advised them to open the grave and see if the buried man was not lying sucking his thumb, for if so he must be a sailor, and the sea would not rest until it had got him back. The grave was opened, and he really was found with his thumb in his mouth, so they laid him upon a cart and harnessed two oxen to it, and the oxen ran off with the sailor over heath and moor to the ocean, as if they had been stung by an adder. Then the sand ceased to fly inland but the hills that had been piled up still remained. All this Jorgen listened to and treasured up in his memory of the happiest days of his childhood, the days of the burial feast. How delightful it was to see fresh places and to mix with strangers! And he was to go still further, for he was not yet fourteen years old when he went out in a ship to see the world. He encountered bad weather, heavy seas, unkindness, and hard men such were his experiences for he became ship's boy cold nights bad living and blows had to be endured then he felt his noble spanish blood boil within him and bitter angry words rose to his lips but he gulped them down it was better although he felt as the eel must feel when it is skinned cut up and put into the frying pan i shall get over it said a voice within him he saw the spanish coast the native land of his parents he even saw the town where they had lived in joy and prosperity, but he knew nothing of his home or his relations, and his relations knew just as little about him. The poor ship-boy was not permitted to land, but on the last day of their stay he managed to get ashore. There were several purchases to be made, and he was sent to carry them on board. Jorgen stood there in his shabby clothes, which looked as if they had been washed in the ditch and dried in the chimney. He— who had always dwelt among the sand hills, now saw a great city for the first time. How lofty the houses seemed, and what a number of people there were in the streets, some pushing this way, some that, a perfect maelstrom of citizens and peasants, monks and soldiers, the jingling of bells on the trappings of asses and mules, the chiming of church bells, calling, shouting, hammering, and knocking, all going on at once. Every trade was located in the basement of the houses or on their side thoroughfares, and the sun shone with such heat, and the air was so close that one seemed to be in an oven full of beetles, cockchafers, bees, and flies, all humming and buzzing together. Jorgen scarcely knew where he was or which way he went. Then he saw just in front of him the great doorway of a cathedral, the lights were gleaming in the dark aisles, and the fragrance of incense was wafted towards him. Even the poorest beggar ventured up the steps into the sanctuary. Jorgen followed the sailor he was with into the church, and stood in the sacred edifice. Colored pictures gleamed from their golden backgrounds, and on the altar stood the figure of the Virgin with the child Jesus, surrounded by lights and flowers. Priests in festive robes were chanting, and choir boys in dazzling attire swung silver censers. What splendor and magnificence he saw there! It streamed in upon his soul and overpowered him. The church and the faith of his parents surrounded him, and touched a chord in his heart that caused his eyes to overflow with tears. They went from the church to the marketplace. Here a quantity of provisions were given him to carry. The way to the harbor was long and weary. And overcome with various emotions he rested for a few moments before a splendid house with marble pillars statues and broad steps here he rested his burden against the wall then a porter in livery came out lifted up a silver-headed cane and drove him away him the grandson of that house but no one knew that and he just as little as anyone then he went on board again and once more encountered rough words and blows much work, and little sleep. Such was his experience of life. They say it is good to suffer in one's young days if age brings something to make up for it. His period of service on board the ship came to an end, and the vessel lay once more at Rinkjöbing in Jutland. He came ashore and went home to the sand dunes near Husby, but his foster mother had died during his absence. A hard winter followed this summer. Snowstorms swept over land and sea, and there was difficulty in getting from one place to another. How unequally things are distributed in this world. Here there was bitter cold and snowstorms, while in Spain there was burning sunshine and oppressive heat. Yet, when a clear frosty day came, and Jorgen saw the swans flying in numbers from the sea toward the land across the norr Volsberg, it seemed to him that people could hardly breathe more freely here. In imagination he saw the heath-blossom become purple with rich, juicy berries, and the elder-bushes and lime-trees of Norvosburg in flower. He made up his mind to go there again. Spring came, and the fishing began. Jorgen was now an active helper in this, for he had grown during the last year, and was quick at work. He was full of life and knew how to swim, to tread water, and to turn over and tumble in the strong tide. They often warned him to beware of the sharks which seize the best swimmer draw him down and devour him but such was not to be jorgen's fate at a neighbor's house in the dunes there was a boy named martin with whom jorgen was on very friendly terms and they both took service in the same ship to norway and also went together to holland they never had a quarrel but a person can be easily excited to quarrel when he is naturally hot tempered "'for he often shows it in many ways, "'and this is just what Jorgen did one day "'when they fell out about the merest trifle. "'They were sitting behind the cabin door "'eating from a delt plate "'which they had placed between them. "'Jorgen held his pocket knife in his hand "'and raised it towards Martin, "'and at the same time became ashy pale, "'and his eyes had an ugly look. "'Martin only said, "'Ah, ah, you are one of that sort, are you? "'Fond of using the knife?' The words were scarcely spoken when Jorgen's hand sank down. He did not answer a syllable, but went on eating, and afterwards returned to his work. When they were resting again, he walked up to Martin and said, "'Hit me in the face. I deserve it. But sometimes I feel as if I had a pot in me that boils over.' "'There, let the thing rest,' replied Martin. And after that they were almost better friends than ever. When afterwards they returned to the dunes and began telling their adventures, this was among the rest. Martin said that Jorgen was certainly passionate, but a good fellow after all. They were both young and healthy, well-grown and strong, but Jorgen was the cleverer of the two. In Norway the peasants go into the mountains and take the cattle to find pasture. On the west coast of Jutland huts have been erected among the sand hills. They are built of pieces of wreck and thatched with turf and heather. There are sleeping places round the walls, and here the fishermen live and sleep during the early spring. Every fisherman has a female helper, or manager, as she is called, who baits his hooks and prepares warm beer for him when he comes ashore, and gets dinner cooked and ready for him by the time he comes back to the hut tired and hungry. Besides this, the managers bring up fish from the boats, cut them open, prepare them, and generally have a great deal to do. Jorgen, his father, and several other fishermen and their managers inhabited the same hut. Martin lived in the next one. One of the girls, whose name was Elsa, had known Jorgen from childhood. They were glad to see each other, and were of the same opinion on many points, but in appearance they were entirely opposite, for he was dark, and she was pale and fair, and had flaxen hair, and eyes as blue as the sea in sunshine. End of Part 1 of A Story from the Sand Hills. Recording by Alan Putzig, March 2015, Boston.